So we've been considering the, this power paragraph, which is one of my favorite paragraphs in all the scriptures, um, because it, con- it contains my favorite verse in all the scriptures, which is Romans 8.18. And Paul points out the suffering of this present time. And we don't know what's going on in this Roman city church. We do know kind of historically what might be happening, right? A couple of decades back, the Roman emperor actually kicked out all the Jews from Rome. And so it was a flood of Gentiles into the city. And then the Jews were allowed back in. And so these Jewish Christians come to their church and they see these Gentiles. They talk differently. They eat differently. They observe the Sabbath on different days. Their thingy-mabobs look different, right? If you know what I mean. Uh, Everything about them is different. And these two cultures are clashing. Uh, And so there might be some internal disputes within the church. But you also remember at this time, Christianity is considered a cult, a very dangerous cult. They actually described Christians at this, in this time as atheists because these Christians would not acknowledge the pantheon of gods. Because remember, when the Romans conquered people, they would just take their gods. All these Greek gods, all these Phoenician gods, all these Ethiopian gods, all, it's just all fair game. And you were supposed to res- you know, respect the diversity, right? Uh, and yet these Christians would say, no, there's only one God. And our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they would call these Christians atheists. They would call them cannibals because these Christians kept talking about eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. So they're like, oh, God, these atheist cannibals, baby killers, right? Um, And so you can imagine there's there's a lot of suffering within the church, a lot of suffering outside of the church, not to mention the daily grind of their everyday persistence in living and we we know what that's like we know what it's like to face church struggles church drama we know what it's like for other people to not understand why we believe the things we believe why we won't do certain things and why we do certain things Uh, and not even with regards to faith just like being a human being is incredibly difficult duh right uh and that's why so many of us not so many of us backtrack that's why we all hope in something right that's why we all hope in something we all cling to something uh, because we know we maybe we don't know but we hope that things will get better things will get better but oftentimes outside the scope of scripture outside the scope of who Christ did and what uh, who Christ is and what he did that hope pretty much just ends at i hope things get better that's it there's no foundation to it how do you know things will get better uh, i just hope it does there's no foundation to it nor do we know the the eventual outcome of that hope are things going to get better we don't know And so oftentimes the hope that we have outside the scope of scripture, outside the gospel of Jesus, is 
just kind of this fairy tale hope. It's a hopeless hope. But today, as we, as we continue to consider what hope means and what a biblical vision of hope is, I hope <laughs> that we will have a deeper understanding of a hope that is grounded in who Christ is, what he has done, and what that means for you in your eternity past, present, and eternity future. And so three, three things I'm going to talk about is what we hope for. That's the first thing. What we hope for. Why we hope for it. And finally, how to best hold on to hope. So those are our three points today. What we hope for, why we hope for it, and how to best hold on to that hope. And I have like seven minutes to do this. Here we go. What do we hope for as Christians? So I'm not talking about a general hope. What do Christians hope for? We read in verse 24, if, Julie, if Cho can pull it up. Verse 24, what do we read? For in this hope, we were saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved, right? You know that you're, you've received the salvation of Christ. And so if you know what it means to be saved by Christ, that means you have this hope. And so what is this hope talking about? Well, let's go back to verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait, we wait in hope, eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so there it is. There is our hope. What are we hoping in? In this crazy messed up world, what, what is our ultimate, our, our hope is in the consummation of the full extent of our salvation. Because you, you and I, we're all saved. But our hope is in the consummation of the full extent of our salvation. Because you know, you know what it means to be justified. You know that in your head, you know, all right, I, am, I have been made righteous before God because of what Christ has done. And, you, and we read in Romans, like, okay, and I'm, I'm adopted. I am, I am the son or I am the daughter of the Most High. And we know this in our brains, and maybe we know it in our hearts. But, but as we kind of were here, the reality of that doesn't quite hit us, or at least it hasn't hit you as much as it's going to hit you on that day. When you come before the Father, and you know here on earth, oh, I'm justified. But you come face to face before the Father. And you see him in his holiness. You see him in his absolute godliness. I, you know, I was listening to one of my Christian podcasts, and it was, coming, it was in that, in that um, passage in, I believe it's in 1 Samuel, where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, shows up to this Jewish town. These people believe in God. They looked at the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant was this, like, golden box, basically, all right? They just looked at it. Like, 30 of them died. No, I think it was, like, 70 of them. 70 people just died just looking at this thing because just the presence of, this, uh, presence of God in this golden box, <laughs> coming into contact with a people who are admittedly not holy, it kills them. And yet, when we stand face-to-face -face with this God, he looks at us and he's going to say, you are right. 
you're justified because my son's righteousness covers you. In verse 30, we read, and I can't wait to get to this verse in a couple of months, but uh, Paul says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so those, this is what we call the golden chain of salvation, um, right? Because we've been justified. We've been called by God. We've been uh, sanctified. We've been adopted. We've, we are glorified. And yet we see these things as, as elsewhere Paul says, like we're looking into a mirror dimly. We're looking into a, like a gas station mirror. <laughs> and that's what we see right now. Yeah, we're justified, but it's like it's got crummy bits on it. Yeah, we're adopted. It's got little crummy bits on it. And yet one day, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, we will see it in our fullness. See that in its fullness, in its entirety. And that's what we hope for. And why do we hope for that? Point number two. Why do we hope for that? Why do we hope for a fuller justification, for a fuller sanctification that we can stand before God and say, yeah, I knew I was adopted, but wow, I, now I know you, my daddy. Like, how, how can we, why do we long for the fullness of our salvation? Well, let's read on in verse 24. There we go, Joe. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Hope that is not seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. We hope in these things and we must hope in these things as Christians because the reality that we hope for is simply not here. The reality that we are hoping for is not. And this hope that we have, it is, our, it is God's gift and the church's gift to a despairing world because the despair of this present age, the sorrow of this present age, because we all suffer, whether you're a Christian or not, we all suffer, we all go through it, and yet there is a qualitative difference in how the Christian sees their sorrow, uh, sees their suffering and the unregenerate uh, non-Christian sees their suffering. Because we can suffer, and yes, it hurts, and we can go through all these painful experiences, and yet we have a great hope, verse 23. But the despair of this present age, of the non, of those who do not believe, of those who do not have this hope, is that they put their hope in hopeless things. When I was writing, for some reason, I was thinking about the Pharisees. I was thinking about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Come on in, boys. We just started. Uh, we <clears throat> I was thinking about the religious leaders and their interactions with Jesus. And the Pharisees were the kinds of people who put their hope in what they could see. And what is it that they saw? Well, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they saw their own righteousness. They saw their own social standing, their own religious standing, and they saw it in relation to these wretched people, these sinners, these drunks, these adulterers, these robbers. And of course, then what else did they see? Because they're righteous. There are these sinners. Who's sitting next to the sinners? There's Jesus. 
and Jesus is sitting with them. He's eating with them. And yes, he's drinking with them. And they say, what they see is these wretched sinners associating with Jesus. And so, what do they see? And what is their hope? Oh, I'm better than Jesus. They put their hope in what they saw, and what they saw was Jesus the drunk. Jesus the friend of sinners, right? Jesus the fill in the blank. And that's all they could associate with him. Oh, he hangs out with sinners, and therefore, he, he, how could he claim to be the son of God? Because here he is, steeped in a room filled with unrighteousness. Their hope was in that. Their hope was in puffing themselves up, standing over Jesus and standing over these, admittedly, yes, they were sinners, saying, look how righteous I am. And look at Jesus. He's supposed to be a teacher of the law, and yet he is with these sinners. And what they could not see, what they could not see was that if you sit down with Jesus, your life is never the same. When you experience who Jesus is, no matter how good or how bad you are, your life will never be the same. What they could not see was the life transformation that happens in the one who sits and eats with Jesus, as Ezra was kind of memeing around here. The one who, I don't know why I kissed. I don't know why that was a knocking sound. Uh, knock, knock, knock. That was so weird. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, it's me, Jesus, and he lets him in. Jesus, I'll give Jesus a smooch, why not? Um, (laughs) When we invite Jesus in, there is a change in your heart. There is a change in your life that cannot be explained by any philosophy or moral code. They could not see the kind of change that occurs in the heart of the person who says, Jesus, come. And so these religious leaders, they put their hope in themselves, and all that ends up happening is they become this condemning, you know, don't judge me, right? But that's, that's what they were so great at, right? So there's that. So there's, the, there's this, like, the religious side of hope, if that makes sense, right? There's, like, a religi- religiosity to hope that says, I am good, I am right because of what I do, and I am better than you. And I say this, uh, I kind of, I've taken this example to an extreme, but this is so easy. Uh, this, this type of thing is so easy to creep into our hearts, right? Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I know, the, I know the gospel, and I, I know the, you know, and, and so good, I'm good, I'm good. And we rely on our own religiosity, and we hope in that. But let's look at the other opposite side. Let's look at the other side. The Pharisees were the religious ones, but let's think about an anti-religious view of this scene, an anti-religious view. And they see the same thing that the Pharisees see. Look, it's Jesus hanging out with sinners, hanging out with adulterers, hanging out with drunks, hanging out with so on and so forth. If he's hanging out with them, then Jesus must really like me. And not just like me, but like the things that I do. If he's hanging out with the drunks, oh man, he must like when I get drunk. If he's hanging out with the adulterers, he must like it when I'm 
sexually immoral. If he's hanging out with the rob- if he's hanging out with the robbers, then he must uh, he must love he, he must be okay with my love of money, so on and so forth. And they see Jesus hanging out with all these people, and they put their hope in what they think Jesus is doing, which is affirming their sin, being okay with their lifestyle. So let's get this straight. Jesus does not associate with sin. He associates with sinners. And in fact, this, this, the same problem that the, the problem that the Pharisees have is the same problem that anti-religious people have, which is that they only see what they want to see. And they only hope in what they see. And so what do they see? And what, well, what do they not see? which is what we truly put our hope in. What do they not see? They see that when you sit with Jesus, no matter how good or how bad you are, your life is never the same. They could not see the life transformation that happens in the one who sits and eats with Jesus. The kind of change that occurs in the hearts of those who invite Jesus into their home, into their hearts, into their lives. See, the religious person puts their hope in their self-righteousness and they climb on top of their moralism and they climb on top of this pile of good works so that they can look down on the people who are less righteous and less upstanding than they are and say, look, I'm king of the mountain. And the non-religious person puts their hope in their self-affirmation and they climb on top of their freedom and their acceptance And so that they can look down on people who are less affirming than they are, less gracious than they are, and say, look, I'm king of the mountain. Neither of these types of people know who Jesus really is. And neither of these types of people have a hope that will endure. Neither of these types of people have a hope that lasts. Indeed, you know the mountain that they're climbing on? It's a bunch of crap. I was going to say the S word, but this is getting, rec- this is getting recorded. So <laughs> what, they're, what they're climbing on top of, it's just a bunch of crap. In the Greek, it's skabala. It's my favorite word, right? That's the same word that's in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For like the really... Mimi translators, they would translate rubbish as the S word. But let's just say it's doo-doo. Danga. Donga. Right? It's, it's doo-doo. So all this righteousness that these religious people pile up, they're climbing on top of it and say, I'm king of the mountain, but the mountain is made of crap. And all of these, all of the non-religious people who say, Jesus loves me for who I am, and climb up on this mountain, and say, look, I can do whatever I want because I'm king of the mountain. It's a mountain full of crap. You see, Jesus, he loves sinners, and religious people hate that. But his love is not stagnant. Non-religious people hate that. Jesus loves sinners, but his love is the power through the Holy Spirit. It's It's the power to change. It's the power to be transformed. The unchangeable God changes sinners. 
Jesus did not eat with sinners that they would remain sinners. Jesus did not sit with tax collectors so that they could continue defrauding. He did not speak to adulterers so that they can continue in their sexual immorality. But, he, but it wasn't like he lorded this over them, right? It wasn't like, hey, you, you know, don't do this X, Y, and Z, and you got to do this X, A, B, C. No, the very presence of Jesus and the, and the true knowledge of Jesus is the power to change. And it is that power that carries into the hope that we have, the hope that we do not yet see, and yet we know for a fact is a reality because of who Jesus is. We can hope for what we do not see. Not in a religious sense or not, even, not in an affirming sense, but we hope in the things that only God can see. We hope in the new life that is lived for Christ. We hope in a new heart that beats to the rhythm of Christ. We hope for new desires that please Christ. We hope for things that we cannot see, but God sees. And not only does he see it, but he brings it to fruition. God sees sinners, and he says, that's not a sinner, that's my daughter. That's not a sinner, that's my son. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks to this Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and is living with a man who is not her husband. But, it, but this adulterous Samaritan woman, she becomes the first missionary, bringing the gospel of Jesus to her Samaritan town and saying, hey, there's this guy and he's told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And his disciples see him talking to the Samaritan woman. They're like, what are you doing? But they, they got little, little chinky eyes. They couldn't, see, they couldn't see past what they could see. But Jesus, he sees what we do not see. He sees the Samaritan woman become the first missionary. He sees Zacchaeus, a little shorty, climbing up, the, climbing up the tree. And Zacchaeus is embraced by the love of Christ. He is this tax collector, by the way. And he's defrauded a lot of guys. A lot of people, he's taken more money than he should have. And then when Jesus eats with him, he says, everyone whom I have defrauded, I will pay back four times as much. Only by the power of Christ even the guy who wrote this letter, Paul, remember, if, I don't know if you've ever read Acts, but Paul standing there and nodding and being like, yes, as the apostles are getting stoned to death. This guy is rounding up Christians so that they can be jailed or executed. It is this guy who becomes the greatest missionary in Christian history and who writes most of the New Testament, Paul. Even the, even the apostles, they looked at Paul and they're like, this guy? Wait, we're letting him in? Like, he, he literally, I mean, how do we know he's not going to kill us, right? God sees what we do not see. God sees sinners become sons and daughters of the Most High. And so how do we best hold on to this hope? Um, <coughs> we hope not in what we see, but we do hope in what we hear. We hope in what we do not see, but we do hear about it. And how do we hear about this hope? It's through the word of God. 
through the word of God. Though I cannot see him, my heart knows him well. And how can that be true of us? It's through holding fast to the word of God, which speaks the truth into our lives. It speaks the truth of our past, that Christ indeed died, was buried, and was raised to justify, sanctify, adopt, and glorify you. Your sin is no more. It is the word of God that speaks, as in 1 Peter 2.9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And it is by that hope that we, that we can hear the hope for the future, that though we consider the sufferings of this present time as not we, cons- we do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so do not find your hope in your religiosity, but also do not find your hope in just living as you are, but cling to the hope of Christ. Cling to the Christ of the Bible. Cling to the Christ who has not only saved you from sin, but has saved you to holiness. He's not only grabbed you out of death, but he has brought you into a fullness and newness of life. Let's pray. Father God, we are so tempted to hope in the things that we see, hope in the things that are right in front of us, and it's so easy to put our hope in our own righteousness and in our own goodness And if not that, then it's so easy to hope in just an affirmation of our sinful life. But Lord, you have called us to none of these things and more than these things. That indeed, you have chosen to sit with us and eat with sinners like us. And yet at the same time, your very presence and your gentle word in our hearts is the power to change is the power to pursue your holiness and to pursue the glory of the children of God. And so, Father, would we rest in that hope that though life is hard and we may suffer many things, that our hope is not founded in us, whether in a religious sense or an anti-religious sense, but our hope is found completely and wholly and fully in Jesus Christ who died and was raised for me. We thank you, Lord, for this love that you show us every day. In Jesus' name I pray.